360 degrees. Hop high, 360 degrees. Hop high, 306, 306, 360 degrees. Hop high. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine produced by members and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program, broadcasting from right here at KPFA in Huchin, occupied Ohlone territory, also known to settlers as Berkeley, California. Tonight, we will be collaborating with one of our own graduate apprentices, that is Kat Petru of Group 42, a.k.a. Fortitude. Shout out to Fortitude. On tonight's show, we'll speak with Kat and learn about what she has been doing since she left KPFA. And we'll also be joined by Lyle Camargo and Trey Vasquez of Movement Generation and speak about their podcast, Did We Go Too Far?, a project that Kat is currently working on. That's tonight on Full Circle. I am your host, Freewell and Franklin, coming to you from downtown Antioch, right here in Bay Miwok territory. Keep it locked to KPFA. Welcome to Did We Go Too Far, a movement generation podcast, your favorite listen for all things. Well, post 2020? Like, what are we really doing now? Just waiting around hoping everything comes back to normal? And what even is normal? We don't know, but we're hoping to ask, did we go too far politically, environmentally, and socially? So let's figure it out together. Join us, your host, Trey Vasquez. And Lyle Camargo to get the real deal on what got us this far and what the real solutions are. And once and for all, find out if we can recover from our years with Trump, COVID, and impending climate crisis. Let's get this show on the road. All right, again, welcome to Full Circle, the weekly show produced by apprentices and graduates of the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. My name is Freewell and Franklin, and I am your host tonight. And tonight we are featuring an awesome podcast, Did We Go Too Far? A production of Movement Generation and We Rise Productions. And that was their beautiful opening to their podcast, their theme. And tonight we are going to learn about Did We Go Too Far? The podcast. And here are some great selections from different episodes that will find kind of give us the flavor and the feel of the podcast. Hey, but before I go too far, oh, <laughs> uh, let me have my guests introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about Movement Generation and Did We Go Too Far? And let's start with uh, Trey and Lyle, who are the hosts of the podcast, Did We Go Too Far? And Trey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about movement generation. I would love to. What's up, Frank? How you doing? Hey. Um, really happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, yeah, so my name is Trey Vasquez. Uh, I go by he, him. And uh, I am with Movement Generation. So 
just a little bit about our organization. Uh, we're a justice and ecology project. That's a collective made up of about 10 members uh, rooted in the Bay Area that works and builds towards liberation and restoration of land, labor, and culture, uh, primarily with low-income communities and communities of color. Uh, and a lot of that work largely moves through political education training, movement building, practice, and cultural strategy, narrative shifting, like this podcast, to really bring to the ground just transition, uh, which is moving away from the dominant extractive economy and towards a regenerative living economy. So in a nutshell, that's a little bit about what we do. All right. That's great. And Lyle, tell us about yourself as one of the hosts of Did We Go Too Far and the rough idea of how the podcast got started. Hey, Frank. Uh, Lyle Camargo, they, them, theirs, pronouns. I live in Wichita Territory of the Ohlone People's Lands. Um, I'm a cultural strategist, an artist, a filmmaker, a producer, uh, and I'm a strong advocate for um, just solving this climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, the podcast really came out as like, we had Movement Generation, which um, has a show, a web series called The North Pole Show, had just completed its third season, which was co-produced by Rosario Dawson. And um, after that, I was like, are we going to do another season of a show? Or are we going to think about another vehicle to kind of share a lot of these radical frameworks, which Trey was talking about, the Just Transition um, framework and it, it was just like very clear that the frame the vehicle that we were using to spread um, knowledge entertainment as well as uh, in the spirit of creating cultural content and leaning into artistry that it was a time to experiment with something new so the podcast was born out of this desire to continue entertaining folks bringing folks into the dialogue of what it is we need to do to shift over to a regenerative living economy and at the same time to have fun and give artists space within the organization to create. Um, so it was born out of that spirit um, and I, as uh, the organization's supportive role through cultural strategy as well as a content creator, we just kind of started thinking about whether it was the best, uh, the best vehicle. It, what, it The collective is horizontal, so the process to get here was a little bit longer than I think a usual podcast team would need. But overall, we had 11 people that were satisfied and had a voice and a say in what they wanted the podcast to be, which is leaning into that spirit of cooperation, which is so central to the Just Transition framework towards a regenerative living economy. And if you don't know, look it up on the Movement Generation website and you'll get to see more about what, what it is that I'm talking about, what it is that Trey is talking about. Definitely. Thank you for that explanation. And of course, we will always have links on our website to all the topics tonight. And that website will be kpfaapprentice.org. Check that out after the show for all the connections to Movement Generation, Did We Go Too Far, and other topics we'll discuss tonight. Well, uh, last but of course not least, our beloved First Voice graduate, Kat Petru. Woo! Um, remind our listeners about the time you had here as a First Voice apprentice and how you got involved with Did We Go Too Far? Yes, hello. It's so fun to be back doing Full Circle. Thanks for having us, Frank. Um, hey folks, I'm Kat. I use she, her pronouns. I was in group 42 or fortitude um, with the First Voice Apprenticeship Program. Huge love. That's where I learned everything I know about audio production. And from First Voice, um, I started collaborating with my friends and my community and We Rise Production was born. 
And in that span of a few years, I actually connected with Lael. Um, they were working with the Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective. And I was really eager to learn more about TJ and to practice. And we had a meeting at a coffee shop on Broadway in Huchin in Oakland um, with the we my We Rise um, co-producer, co-conspirator, Nicole Gervasio. And that was several years ago. And then just in the last year, um, Lyle reached out to us and said, do you want to work with MG on this podcast? And we were both like, heck yes. Um, so that is a nutshell of how we got to be here. And it's just been an honor and it's been so fun all the way along the way. Thank you, Kat. Um, it's great to have you back. I really appreciate you all getting together for this. And I'm excited that you're all here to share some of the sounds from Did We Go Too Far and different clips tonight. And we're gonna go in chronological order of the episodes that you have produced. So we'll start with a clip from episode one and I will let each person that picked that clip set up what we're about to hear. And Trey, you picked this clip from episode one. The title of the pilot show was All the Things We Don't Have Answers For. So tell us um, who and what we are about to hear in this clip. Yeah, so this uh, this is this first episode uh, is actually uh, with Gopal Dayanini, who's one of the original co-founders of Movement Generation. And Charlene Carruthers was just a really amazing, brilliant uh, movement builder, uh, cultural strategist, uh, just a brilliant thinker. And we selected this clip because it just really captures this beautiful exchange between Gopal and Charlene talking about the distinction between governance and recreational politics uh, and, the, and the lineage of recreational politics and how it's essentially rooted in, in oppression, right, and violence. And so... I just love this exchange and I'm, I'm looking forward to y'all getting a chance to hear it too. All right. Thanks for that great introduction. So here's a clip from episode one of the podcast. Did we go too far? And the episode is all the things we don't have answers for. We'll be right back. I was thinking to myself, like the distinction between sort of politics as we think of it and, and governance, which is of the course. process of actually, yeah steering right yeah, like, and it's because we've allowed our only mechanism for actual governance to be captured by this recreational politics like and by that i mean well so this is this thing that i was thinking about um one of the questions that went out in the like email for for us to be on the podcast was like why do we have presidents and it's like oh well i mean i don't know but what the one answer is like because they didn't want to have a king and they couldn't come up with anything better. It's like, you know, but, but I think there's something, a, a more fundamental question, which is for me, which is like, what is the basis of our quote unquote democracy in the first place? And it's slavery. And of course, it's easy to say everything is ultimately about slavery. And it's true. But in this case, I want to specifically speak to the fact that we inherited the sort of Greco-Roman democracy in which a group of people who have power are allowed to govern as a form of recreation separate from daily life because of slavery. 
because enslavement allows them to not have to actually work. And so they then get to have a Senate where they sit around and literally govern as a form of recreation. Right. And it's like, whereas indigenous peoples, land-based people, like governance has been integrated into the practice of daily life. And this notion of an abstracted representative democracy where you elect somebody to make decisions on your behalf, where you abdicate responsibility for the daily practice of governance is entirely a function of exploitation because you have to enclose enough surplus that you can let some people just do that while everybody else, um, you know, works away and the whole politics Mm -hmm. versus, uh, of governance thing. It's like, we have to get back to actually the practice of daily governance, which doesn't actually necessarily have to be, you know, violent and involve suffering because we have models of, matriarchal forms of social organization and cooperative forms of governance. And yes, there's struggle, but the struggle doesn't have to be violent and oppositional. That's right. Can I follow up on Gopal? Please. Okay. So of course. I, I just hope people receive that Gopal is not taking like the genealogy or the history of U.S. governance and how we, how we got here, like just back to John Locke. <laughs> But like taking it like people like to Europe or to Western Europe, but to like Greco Roman mm-hmm. times, like this stuff is old. This stuff is really, really old. And I really appreciate that point because I actually never thought about it that way. I'm like, yeah, they were slavers. Like I know that they're mm-hmm. slavers. And nobody has ever talked about recreational politics to me. So I'm like, oh, that might show up in one of my class discussions. And people are gonna think I'm brilliant, but I'm gonna tell them I got it from you. <laughs> but and the bromance <laughs> continues again. <laughs> will happen. But it's, it's such an important point because I think we do have conversations in the U.S. about like who does the labor so that other people can go participate in the economy in a particular way. Because domestic labor mm-hmm. is labor. It's work, right? Taking mm-hmm. care of people's children, mm-hmm. doing laundry, doing whatever it is that they do in folks' homes, right? So that they can then go out and do this, this other work. And now we see in the midst of this pandemic where women, and I appreciate some of the, the data, it's like actually it's mostly black and brown women who have lost their jobs, um, particularly in December, and white women gain jobs um, in December. And people lost like well over 100,000 jobs. And these are mostly black and brown women who lost them in the month of December last year. And so this is going to be a real fun time for people who are labor organizers. And it's actually a hell of an opportunity to seize it. I don't have a lot of faith in most organized labor. And somebody can quote me on that. But there are areas that I do. Like, actually, I'm really, really excited, particularly about, like, some of the Southern domestic worker organizing that's happening. And not even just in the South, but localized domestic worker organizing that's happening across the country. The labor organizing that happens with people who are undocumented. And, like, no, we don't fit your laws, but we're still going to organize and say that we actually deserve to work with Mm -hmm. a certain level of dignity we deserve that and so this is a hell of a time for labor like uh, it could be an amazing opportunity could be be. i don't know if they're gonna seize it because they're still wrapped up in representing you know correctional officers and police unions and things like that and they can't get over their their ridiculousness many of them so i think that we do have an opportunity before us 
for people to even think about work differently. And outside of Marxist conceptualization or ideas, Marxist ideas of what work is and what it isn't. Who is a worker? Who isn't a worker? What is work? What isn't? And I mean talking about the radical Marxism stuff too. But how might we think about mm-hmm. how people, how we can govern, as Gold Paul is saying, and how people can have their needs met and people can live with dignity. And we have to think, especially now in this moment, we've always had to really, outside of even what we think labor and work are, even on the left, you know, and this is an opportunity for us to do that. This is where one of the things that I think MG's contribution to this redefinition of the whole notion of work, mm-hmm. like we, we, when we say work or labor, people think we're talking about it in the industrial sense. Right. And we, of course, because that's, that's what we were colonized into thinking about, right? Mm-hmm. But like this idea that all living things take energy from the sun, they convert it into power to do work. And if you think of work in that way, then you do not distinguish between the beating of a heart and the hugging of a child and the building of a building and the planting of a seed and the singing of a song. It's all work. Mm-hmm. It's all work. Mm-hmm. All right. Welcome back. This is Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. And the audio we are featuring tonight is from the Movement Generation podcast, Did We Go Too Far? And that clip you just heard was from the pilot episode, All the Things We Don't Have Answers To. Oh, that was an awesome clip. This is a, a great podcast. and I love the casual conversation, but the, the deep topics. Now, um, I want to ask you all, there are many constants to the Did We Go Too Far podcast. And one that I've been hearing is that it comes and that you promote is that it comes from a queer, a trans, basically a non-conforming, non-gender specific point of view. So I want to do kind of a rapid fire round table here and go around and ask you, why is it important that the average American not only listen to these views, but take it into consideration, these thoughts, these ideas and the feelings and emotions that are put into them? And we'll start with Trey. All right. That's a good question. Um, for me, you know, I'll, I'll put it quite simply. I think that the experiences of, of many of us, uh, queer and trans folks, particularly, you know, black, indigenous people, color, queer and trans folks, in all of our own respective experiences, um, there's there's some common threads in, in terms of navigating the society and, you know, the reality of being up against not only white supremacy, but uh, uh, cis-heteropatriarchy too. And the places in which we have to really see into the nuances and we've been put into the shadows, but also embody so much creative resilience. And so, I mean, I, I could make it that simple, right? That in in the midst of everything that we have experienced in this lifetime, we've found uh, so much, so much beautiful vision for the world that we want, for the world that we need. Because I think, in a lot of cases, we've seen the worst of what the world can be. Definitely, definitely. Thank you, Trey and Leal. Let's go to you. Why are these views, these topics, these um, ideas important for us all to know? But I think specifically with this episode, what feels really just two things that we'll talk about in the short clip is government structures and labor. Those are two topics that have been, that have been 
we've been taught on how to think about how we govern our lives and who has power in that when something happens, you call the police. When something happens, you go to the city council. When something happens, you um, go to this courtroom that's all locally. The way that we have set up our government structure has been very dominated by Greco-Roman um, influence, which Gopal and Charlene talk about, and that there hasn't been any queering up. And the idea of queering up is to take something complicated, shake it up, see where it can be improved, complicate what's not working and what can be potentially problematic. And so if you look at these two structures that they talk about, which is governance and how our governments work and, and how we understand government on the mainstream, but what they're really talking about when they say governance is they're talking about how we how we choose to engage with each other. What do we do when people cause harm? When people have caused harm and there's conflict, how do we manage our relationships in times of crisis, difficulties, et cetera? And so when they talk about government structures and needing to look at them a little bit deeper, that is a querying practice. When you look at, when they're talking about labor and that we need to complicate, well, we, when we talk about labor and work and our roles, that we need to complicate that. That is a querying of labor and that that is what queer people embody is our sole existence when we walk into the room is that by how we choose our sexual relationships our partnerships our everything that we do how we exist and walk in the earth and how we express our gender we are queering up the binary and what people perceive to be normal. The normal that has been set up by our society has been dominated by a supremacist perspective, which is coming from a European ancestry that we are all being impacted at a global scale. So when they talk about labor and governance and zone in on why these aren't working, what's the history of them, how we need to change our perspective, that is a practice of querying, which queer people do every single day when they wake up and they go to sleep. Their existence is a challenging, a complication, a relinquishing. And so in holding that querying practice through the whole podcast, through the reality that Trey and I actually don't have to try too hard to do that. We've lived querying. It's been part of our libertarian experience that that has allowed for people to, in this very specific moment where it just feels like the economic and the political tensions are hitting us all so hard, that that perspective is not only necessary and requested of us as queer folks, as of all to think more in a complicated lens, but that it's, it's, it's what people need. People need that breath of fresh air because the nine to five, the court systems, our governance structures, our policing carceral system, they're not working anymore and we all can feel it that's right that's right well thank you uh Lyle and Kat you want to um throw your ideas in that why are these perspectives and viewpoints so important for people that may not ever hear them otherwise to actually hear and take into consideration yes please get it Lyle <laughs> I love that um thanks for inviting me to share too Frank um I think I can be brief. Um, we have been baked into like this system of lies. Um, like it's a lie that like heteronormativity is a lie. Yeah. Um, I also want to speak directly to the clip and then weave it together. So I think Gopal said something like sequestering excess, but what he's talking about is hoarding. And hoarding is a practice of capitalism, right? It's a, it's a practice of our current economic system fully rooted in white supremacy coming out of Europe. 
And also for folks who aren't familiar with Silvia Federici, she's an Italian scholar and she writes on the relationship between witch burnings in Europe and homophobia in Europe and the transatlantic slave trade. Um, these things brought capitalism to rise. And so it, her, her writing and her work really show um, the way that our struggles for liberation, the roots of the oppression are connected and therefore we, our struggles and our solid, like it illuminates why we need to act in solidarity and, and how our freedom is really bound together. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, Lyle said it, right? Like queering, queering our perspective, queering our relationship of what's expected of us is a way to like unshackle from oppressive uh, systems, um, like institutionally and intimately and in the cells of our bodies and our spirits. It's, it's a beautiful and deep and personal and collective process. Agreed, definitely. And it, uh, I agree with all of what you all said and that um, the bigger picture is that it is needed. Well, let's keep it rolling because we do have some more clips to play. Thank you all for that. And Kat, you could stay on because uh, we're going to check out another clip from the series, Did We Go Too Far? And this clip comes from episode three, Black Land and Liberation. And this was chosen by you, Kat. Uh, briefly tell us what particular uh, what we're about to hear in this particular episode and who we're about to hear for sure so episode three black land and liberation is hosted by um quentin sankofa and crosby um i don't melissa crosby um both mg collective members um and uh, who are black and so lyle and trey ceded the hosting role to them so that we could really center black voices in this episode and um their guests are Leah Penniman from Soulfire Farm and Akuya Shabazz, um, who's part of Reparation Summer and the Drinking Gourd Collective. And in this clip, they're getting into reparations now, why we need reparations now. And then they move into discussing um, relationship with land, especially for Black and Indigenous folks. All right, well, let's check out this next clip and we'll be right back. Thank you. We do need this larger view and this, this larger systemic view. And I hear my people saying reparations now, right? And that's where I didn't speak yes. to reparations mm -hmm. summer, Ashe. but that's what that's about. Yep. Reparations now, okay? So right. this came about, you know, Q and I actually have a, a history of working with some, I won't name names, but we work with some white folks with access to wealth and try to plug them in with black land projects. Guess what? It didn't go well. It didn't go well. Why? Because white supremacy, you know, people have caught me saying that some folks, wealthy folks will start to write a check and their great grandfather will come and knock that pen out their hand. So I'm not playing when I'm talking about we, there's actual, <laughs> so anyway, long story short, through lots of being like, well, I see all this money right here with these, there's already all this, this radical set of folks with access to wealth. How much money's over there? And got some numbers from resource generation and some different networks of folks with access to wealth. Just even a small set of people who are like, I want to fund black liberation stuff. They're already at that point. That makes up already $1.6 trillion minimum. And I'm just talking, I was in a room 
wow. of people. And I was like, wait a minute now. Wow. So through much trial and error, how we got to reparations summer was like, how do we do reparations now? Well, we need to call every summer. We're calling for every summer on June 19th. We're calling folks with access to wealth yes. into accountable relationship mm -hmm. with bodies of mm -hmm. black led collectively determined, democratically determined pots to go back into the land. And we want those pots to also okay. be aligned with our principles rooted in indigenous values, anti-capitalist, anti-white supremacy, patriarchy, right? So mm -hmm. that's what we, we kind of mm -hmm. piloted that last year, learned a lot, but it was very successful. And so part of what we're doing is supporting Black folks to develop and try out models for collective governance and then working with healers to do the actual work that has to happen with folks with access to wealth, like embodiment work, like lineage spiritual work, like organizing training to move their wealth and move their folks' wealth to these collective pots. And so we want this to be more and more distributed. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But we, we have to try moving money now. We can't wait till we have the perfect solution we need sanctuary space and that money needs to go towards right. land. Like if you're invested, if your imaginary numbers are about to get lost in the next stock market crash, what doesn't get lost is an investment mm. in land and the sanctuary that Afro-Indigenous folks are out here trying to create for ourselves, our people, and really to bring the land and right relationship with us, with humans. Mm -hmm which I love. I know Leah mm -hmm. actually has mm -hmm. Soulfire put out a really great set of values for funders that I love. What was that? It was in a toolkit y'all put out. I was like, okay. yes. Yes. We're kind of obsessed with our toolkits and references, but yeah, if you go to the soulfirefarms.org page, there is a, some gentle suggestions for funders of how to not be so racist and horrible that were compiled from a bunch of our comrades and partners. And, and we use that often. <laughs> conversation. Yes. Yeah. So it's like, let's get the systemic, but also foundations, donors, all of these people mm -hmm. should be at minimum giving 10%, which is the average of black working class woman in the United States gives to charity every year. At minimum, 10% of these mm -hmm. folks' wealth should be moved to the hands of collective values aligned, black led pots to use yep. for land. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. on that. Mm -hmm. Following up on that a little bit, Okuya, I have a question specifically for you. So you alluded to it earlier. Back in the day, we worked together on the Black Land and Liberation Initiative, one of the greatest things I've done as an organizer. And during one of our convenings, we worked to draft a manifesto. Mm -hmm. And in that process, we spoke about the need to acknowledge the reality that we're demanding access to land that was stolen from indigenous people, while knowing also that they're fighting for a return of that same land. So it's a complicated thing, but I would just love to hear what are your thoughts on that struggle. Thank you for asking. Well, first of all, let's address this word access because we use it a lot and I don't like it because access to me speaks to someone else's value system is determining who and how gets mm -hmm. into that space. Mm -hmm. And so really, I think we're changing the paradigm of access. 
back into indigenous values. So we have to reach into our indigenous lineage in the black diaspora. I think part of repairing the relationship to the land means we have to understand the history and see where the spiritual and cultural laws of the land got erased. Who were the guardians and the people who knew this landscape? So that's one. Two, we have to remember our indigenous history. A lot of times when we tell the story of the mid-Atlantic slave trade, you know, people still use terms like slave. It's like, no, we're enslaved people taken from our indigenous lands. The sail across the ocean was a different kind of trail of tears. And so we also have to remember when we're talking about repair with land and land theft, land doesn't get removed, right? When we say land theft, the land isn't removed and put somewhere. The value system of how that land was taken care of is removed and people are put in to enforce. That's what settlers did is like, let's move a bunch of people there to enforce this value set, this new kind of power and control. So in order to not be occupiers, but also to acknowledge, you know, for instance, my family has a deep relationship with Louisiana land, you know, and we have a deep history of land and body theft. So we have to allow ourselves to be complex enough and place-based enough to heal all of those relations, Mm -hmm. but we can't reinforce mm-hmm. borders. It's not about someone else owns this land. Mm-hmm. It's about there's a history mm-hmm. that's either been erased or is still in the process of trying to be invisibilized that we want to visibilize as Afro-Indigenous and Black land stewards that we want to be in honor and relationship with. But we too can be honored mm-hmm. in, that's right. you know, it's so critical mm-hmm. for the diaspora to be able to be in relationship to land especially land that we built deep relationship with over the past seven generations now. But we have to bring our indigenous value set with us, which means we honor that land's history, that land's spiritual and cultural laws and guardians. We have to navigate in the complex and relational way. Yeah. Wow. I got a lot of thoughts. I was thinking about this beautiful Julius Nyerere quote. To us in Africa, lands was always recognized as belonging to the community. Each individual within society has a right to use the lands because otherwise we could not earn a living and there is no right to life without the right of maintaining life. But the African's right to land is simply the right to use, not any other right, nor did it occur to us to try to claim one. And so what you're mm, saying Akuya, about like the, the superimposed value system of not trying to replicate colonizer patterns or occupier patterns but to reclaim an indigenous framework Mm -hmm. is really really powerful and at the same time not releasing our belonging to lands one of my friends and mentors Ed Whitfield talks about the blood that we have mixed into the land over those seven generations is part of the anchor of belonging and it's complicated when you get into the actual how-to of doing it but we are indigenous people we are indigenous people and so much Mm -hmm. of our liberation on land is connected to to relearning. You know, when I I had the blessing to go live in Ghana, West Africa for some time, doing the whole heritage trip thing. I lived there for six months. I've been back many times. One of the things I learned about is called the HUSA system of land ownership, H-U-Z-A, of the Krobo people, who are my folks. 
and it is a co-op. It's cooperative farming that has been going on for thousands of years amongst our people. Non-performative, non-celebrated mm -hmm. is just the way land is used. And that was really powerful for me to see that it's not so much of figuring out something entirely new, but it's about that Sankofa of going back, picking up and carrying forward the ways that our ancestors have been doing things all along. All right. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA and KPFA.org. Tonight we are featuring the podcast, Did We Go Too Far? And that clip you just heard was from their third episode, Black Land and Liberation. And this is another particularly, particularly interesting episode because the land we are always standing on is actually occupied uh, land or stolen land. And as we try to have conversations about the land and what living on occupied and stolen land means, um, many times we often get stuck in the historical loop that the land was taken by the survival of the fittest and that we need to move on. Um, but for many people, the liberation, true liberation means land back. And the true healing conversations we need to have as a nation need to go deeper and actually take some responsibility for the true creation of what is called um, the United States. And we're going to kind of go rapid fire on this one um, just for time's sake. Um, so let's just say in about 30 seconds each, why was this particular topic important to you? And we'll start with Kat. Oh, um, it's everything. It's everything. The only way to regain balance to um, to come back from climate catastrophe to make right what was taken, what was what was stolen, genocided, is to to return land and to return to right relationship with land and with all beings. Thank you, Kat. And yes, this is a, such a a great episode. Let's go to Trey. Um, your thirty second important uh, description of why this episode was important. 30 seconds, go. Um, I love this breakdown. I love it because it's a call to action that really captures all the contradictions and deep-seated obstacles to Black liberation in this country. Um, if you got money in the moment, uh, it's more than likely because of your proximity to this social construction of whiteness and wealth and that kind of status is because you're inadvertently or advertently benefiting from the theft of labor uh, to the enslavement of black people and the theft of land from indigenous people. So until that is repaired, until that is paid back through reparations, we can't fully heal. And we recognize that liberation has to happen on, on all levels, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual. And the truth is we're, we're running out of time. And we see that, uh, like Kat mentioned, through climate catastrophes, we see that through this uh, rapidly increasing state violence on black and brown, indigenous, queer, trans, disabled bodies. Um, and that is all rooted in this crisis of disconnection from, from the onset of colonization. So this is a mandate. It's a call to action and, it, and it's got to happen. Yes, land back. And, um, you know, they gave out free land when they took this country and that's how people have generated their and maintained their wealth for generations. Uh, Lyle, your 32nd description on why this episode was so important. <laughs> I think it's just important to hear the firsthand 
ex the firsthand experience of actual Black people who have shifted their whole lives to be able to be in right relationship with the land and to talk about what the redistribution of resources could look like at a larger scale and to kind of add fire to that wood. Um, and I feel like we don't often hear of Black folks who did it, who got the land, who are maintaining it, who are in that complicated relationship of I have to get up at six in the morning and I have a lot of work to do, but it's so worth it because I am decolonizing myself and I'm returning myself to the earth, which is healing me, healing my future descendants, my previous ancestors who were enslaved, and at the same time getting in better relationship for the planet because right now is when we need those examples the most and it's often black and brown people who do not see themselves as stewards of the land because of how colonization and genocide has separated us from that is going to be necessary in order for us to survive as a whole human species not just as a racial category but as a whole human species we need to get black brown indigenous folks back to reconnection to land and i feel like hearing those first person accounts is what this episode's all about. That's why we gave up the seats. That's why we said, this is a Black-centric, Afrocentric episode. Take it away, y'all. It's for you. Definitely. And these are such interesting conversations. And everyone will have to check out the podcast, Did We Go Too Far? Black Land and Liberation, Episode 3, to hear the full effect of that episode. But let's move on because we got one more clip left. And let's get an introduction to this final clip which comes from episode five, the latest episode of Did We Go Too Far, um, titled I Love That. This is Queer Ecology. And this clip was chosen by you, Lyle. So, Lyle, tell us about this episode and who we will hear in this clip. Perfect. Yeah. The episode's called I Love That because everybody says I love that. <laughs> but uh, it's focused on queer ecologies and fashion, which is two uncanny episodes that would not come together, two, two uncanny topics that would not come together. Have we not sat on this position of queering everything up? So you're going to hear information from Desiree Fontenot, who's a Movement Generation Collective member, Curly V, also, or Curly Velasquez, who is a, a fashion icon and actor, as well as just very involved in racial um, justice. And then from Zero Waste Daniel, who's a strong advocate on uh, plastic pollution and the zero waste movement as a fashion designer who repurposes um, byproduct of fashion waste. Um, and so the what you're all going to hear is uh, talking about what fashion has to do with queer liberation as well as the ecology that queerness is often neglected to the, the way that we learn biology in school. All right, let's uh, roll this beautiful footage and we'll be right back. For me, queer ecology is this lens to really reimagine our relationships to the living world and to each other with the knowledge that we're in a, in a planet that's full of an immensely diverse forms of being, forms of embodiment from size and ability, sex and gender variation and forms of kinship, forms of care systems and bonding and affection and strategies for living, for reproducing, for all of these things that are just really expansive and complex and don't fit into neat little categories and hold a lot of lessons for us, um, for our species about adapting and surviving and cooperation. Um, basically it's just one of my favorite ways to like recover from a worldview that's just so deeply binary and like not creative, but just looking out, um, at the natural world and 
also within our own human diversity, like my body, I'm made up of like microbial cells, like half of my body is not human cells, which are just like wild to me. <laughs> um, so it's, it's just like a really big explosive box of like nature abhors a category. And what are some of the ways that we could look at how ecological justice and queer liberation not only intersect, but actually have really interesting ways that it's woven together. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, and we could get more into it. Yeah, I love I love that you said that. Um, I didn't know that half of my body was microbial cells. Desi, do you have any more? Do you have any examples of like when you think about queer ecology, like? What, how do you help ground us in understanding how ecologies and queerness actually intersect? Yeah, let's get into it. So um, there's kind of like three different little buckets of things I like to think about. So the, the first one is gender and sexuality and biological diversity. So it's a way for us to relearn about the world that's um, got rid of the baggage of our uh, high school biology class, just for instance. So like I have, like most plants um, are flowering plants and um, they're bisexual, meaning they have like both reproductive parts. They have eggs and sperm um, and we call it male and female, but really it's like some things have these small gametes, which are sperm, and some things have these big gametes, which are eggs. And there's many different strategies and ways they bring them together. Um, okay. And a big part of it for me too is like, how do I observe the natural world in a way where I'm actually trying to like decolonize the language I use to describe processes and interactions happening in front of me. So I like to, like when I think of like avocados, like they have some flowers that are pollen producing and some flowers that are fruit producing on the same tree. And then all day they like open up each flower and they're presenting different gender expressions as, as strategies through the night. Um, so a friend of mine was like, oh, I'm an avocado. Like that was their like coming out story. They're like, I get, I get that. And then back on that fungi tip, like they just take the cake. There's 36,000 different sexes of fungi and they can all get down with each other. Like they can all get down with each other and they do it in this mysterious process that we don't really understand where they go underground and they like touch fronds for a while. Um, but yeah, there's so many examples. You got your Nemo's, you know, you got the clownfish, you got your banana slug friends, you got bonobos who are like our closest relatives and they solve conflict with sex. They have sex across genders. They're one of the most peaceful species out there. So like, yeah, I can go on about it all day. Um, but that's just like one bucket of things. And then there's a whole other part, parts of queer ecology that are about like looking at our human diversity and how do we come up with the sexual culture that we even have now? How did natural become natural? How did what's natural become a morally neutral place from which to judge and, um, you know, create systems around all of the, the colonization that we're trying to unpack. But like, how do we also put this, how do we put this on our bodies and on our lands in the same way? Um, yeah. And then like, when did sexual actions become identities? Like all of these histories um, and then histories of different cultures of how did gender diverse people um, move through different cultures? How are they celebrated? How are they honored? Um, 
And then the last piece is just like, what's our relationship to, to land look like now? How did queerness and urbanness become the synonymous thing? Like, mm. what are the histories and realities of queer folks living in wild and rural spaces? Um, how does environmental degradation affect us, right? Like, we're out on the front lines, hit first and worst by this climate crisis, and we're also folks who have this unique embodied knowledge, right, of what it takes to change and transition and survive. So, um, you know, what it what does it look like for us to be leaders in this movement for ecological justice? So all of those things fit under this fun little umbrella of queer ecology. Um, yeah. I love that so much. I literally was just talking about... Um, so I'm like technically, I consider myself a sober person. My drug of choice for a very long time was alcohol and cocaine. And I, I don't do that. I've been sober for five years. But one of the things that I've started to reintroduce to myself was microdosing on shrooms. And mm-hmm. I use it for prayer. And I, the way that I look at it is like some people get prescribed medication. Other people use medication from the earth. Um, and it has changed my life phenomenally. It has moved me in directions that I love so much and taken me to what I call like spiritual downloads Mm. that I really get from being on this gift from the earth. And I, it's so funny because I do, Desi, like I look at nature and when I think about the rules and dogma that has been placed on us religiously or what people believe that God believes, I feel like all of the answers are really in nature. Like if you want to like pick humanity apart like from what we're made of to what we believe in to how we grow or how we move, like you really just like can look at plants. You can really just look at energy. I mean, you can look at the um, the energy that they have, the way that they communicate, the way that they do all these different things. And earlier you were talking about the different, um, you said sexes of, of mushrooms, right? Like a fungi, like that's amazing. Like how, like no book is going to tell me anything about that when literally in nature in front of us, is this amazing process that's perfectly natural and like a part of the system. Look, I always say like, you know that a man, like man wrote the Bible, but no man can ever take credit for nature. And so it's kind of like, that's so dope that here we are. Like, I'm like, I always tell people, I'm like, um, you know, God doesn't hate us. God continues to honor diversity. God in fact loves diversity. And the minute that, and and the way that you can kind of see that is because there you are, there you are in this very moment existing as diversity. And so it's like, keep your book, keep your Bible, keep your ideas. It's literally (laughs) in our DNA. So I love that you were like saying all that stuff too, because 100, 100. I love that. Also, I worked at a queer study center at a seminary for like five years. I know a lot of, I've, I've had some great conversations with religious folks about queer ecology it's a great entry point into just being like whoa crime against nature nature is hella queer (laughs) (laughs) absolutely i love that it's interesting too because i I always look at like nature all the time it's literally like i'll just stare at plants and you just like like the other day i was staring at my plants and i noticed that based off of where you place your plant in your living room, right? Like it will move and it will grow towards the sunlight. And sometimes they warp and sometimes they change shapes and they move. I have this beautiful plant. Um, she has a little bit of a hunchback and everyone was like, oh, that's so weird. Like her her kind of like trunk, like kind of has a hunchback and she's mm-hmm. grown this beautiful, like kind of leaf behind her. And I'm like, no one can judge her for who, who she is. She's literally who she is because of like 
circumstances, where she was placed in the world, if you will, of like my living room, right? And I'm like, if you look at any human and you understand those things and you understand that plants and nature will grow according to where it is and based off of its circumstances and understand that they are beautiful exactly the way that they were meant to be, you can kind of do that, you know, with people that you're like, oh, I see that you're some something's a little different. You're maybe not the most positive person, but I can understand that um, you're still very human and you're still very much part of the system that connects all of us. I think that's so beautiful and relevant. I love that plant metaphor because I think that we can see ourselves in plants but we and in nature, but we don't necessarily see humans. So it's easy to um, take on some of those ideas that are a little more esoteric and and for you to talk about your plant as her with a hunchback is so and like it's just really beautiful and powerful. I also always think about how, you know, like science and nature are these random as- assignments of genetic sequences. Like any bazillion outcomes could be possible, but this is your DNA. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that whether it's mushrooms or plants or humans, we find reoccurrences all around the world that make these similar categories. So for queer people to be happening in all presentations of life is a clear distinction that it's natural and it's normal and it's everywhere and it's part of ecology in general. And I I just think that we all have these touch points where as queer people we're made to feel different at some point in our lives. But what's so interesting is how the same we all are. And so I think that that's something that we often come to find out and what kind of throws us into that world of radical acceptance of nature because we are experiencing it, even though we're being sort of like shunned sometimes by the, uh, you know, binary world and the colonized language conversation. Yes, another fascinating topic. Those are conversations from the Movement Generation podcast, Did We Go Too Far? And that was from their latest episode, episode five. You are hearing Did We Go Too Far tonight on Full Circle on KPFA and KPFA.org. And this topic left me with a question I kind of want to end on tonight. And I want you to see what you all think about it. Um, what do you think the stigma of being like trans or gay or queer or anywhere between has done to hold us back as a species, especially here in what has become the United States? What have we lost by not embracing these variations, but stigmatizing and making people afraid to be other than the two norms, making people believe something may be wrong. Um, Let's start with Lyell on this one. What have we lost by this constant stigmatizing? Well, I feel like in saying that it's constant negates the fact that it's actually a bit strategic, that we stigmatize a certain group of people because it's been indoctrinated in the things that we don't learn in history and the things that have been eradicated from the institutions we engage in, such as religion, schools, 
uh, government and paperwork and documentation, all the ways that that gets negated. And so it's not really an active choice for many of us. It's just the way that we've been indoctrinated, which just means the way that we've been taught to live by not seeing certain things. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to interrupt and leave it right there. But I will post the final answers to that question on our website, kpfaapprentice.org, just after the show. And to find out more about We Rise Productions, uh, the work of Kat Petru and her crew, you can go to weriseproduction.com. And you can find them on Instagram at weriseproduction.com. And then on Twitter, they are We Rise Producers. Also, to learn more about and listen to the Did We Go Too Far podcast, you can find it on Spreaker and Apple Podcast as well as Spotify. But you can also listen to it on the Movement Generation website, which is movementgeneration.org. And of course, I will have links to all that on our website, again, kpfaapprentice.org. And that brings us to the end of tonight's show. Remember, go to the website to find all that. And let me give one more shout out to our special guest tonight, First Voice graduate, Kat Petru, and the Did We Go Too Far podcast hosts, Lyle Camargo and Trey Vasquez. And one final shout out to the Full Circle crew. Our executive producer is Miss M. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And myself, Freewell and Franklin, I am the technical director for this show, Full Circle. And I've also been your host tonight. Thanks for listening, everyone out there. And while you're out there, please remember to protect your health and also your humanity. And stay tuned. Up next on KPFA is Londa Bajita. Good night, everyone. Thank you.